Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or at whatever hour you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I will be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. With this year's Missouri Conference on History coming up in March, many scholars will be going to Kansas City. To help prepare for the conference, the Our Missouri podcast invites listeners to explore the city of fountains from the confluence of two mighty rivers near the downtown skyline to the plaza, the paseo, and the intersection of 18th and Vine. This five-part series entitled Going to Kansas City focuses on several projects and institutions that document and define Kansas City's history and identity. Today, we are speaking with Sandra Enriquez. She's an assistant professor of history at the University of Missouri at Kansas City and holds a Ph.D. in history from the University of Houston. In addition to serving as the director of the Latin X Casey Oral History Project, she also supervises the Public History Internship Program at UMKC. Before moving to Missouri, she was affiliated with several public history projects in Texas, including the Gulf Coast Food Project and Civil Rights in Black and Brown Oral History Project. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Sandra Enriquez. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, you were involved in public history projects and, of course, uh, serving in some capacity as an oral historian. Could you tell us a little bit about what oral history is and why you feel it is important? Yes, of course. Um, although many people think that potentially oral history is a new methodology of sorts in the world of history, uh, we've had oral history with us since the beginning of time. Um, as humans, we are tied to oral traditions, right? So we have stories that get passed from generation to generation. Um, and so it's, it's nothing novel. It has not been novel since, um, you know, the latter half of the 20th century. But in the world of history, the, the sources and the methodology of it is novel or has been novel in the last couple of decades. Uh, but oral history is important in, in many ways. Like I mentioned, one, uh, since, you know, talking about oral tradition, uh, oral histories are important in the fact that they allow us to um, collect, recover, and, um, and well, collect and recover um, narratives and histories of underrepresented groups, of groups that may not have uh, the privilege to leave written records behind. Uh, so I'm thinking about you know racial minorities, ethnic minorities, women, children, uh, just people that, and groups of people that do not have the privilege or the means to leave diaries and letters behind. So it's important because we recover the histories of, of, of communities that, we, that may not be represented in the traditional sense of archives, right? Not in government documents, not in newspaper articles, et cetera. So that's why it's important. Uh, a second reason why it's important, and to me, this is, I think, what matters the most is the fact that oral history allows you to create a process with a subject in history, right? I think that no other, uh, no other source, source, archival source that you may find uh, in a library, right, uh, allows you to create a relationship with 
a subject. So it's not just about the document itself that's being created, but it's about the process of, of creating that document. So in the process of creating that document, you're connecting with a member of a community that um, may not necessarily leave archives behind, right? So not, you're not only giving voice to the person who is helping you create this document, right, this, this new archive, but you're also creating a relationship with the person. And so for me, that's the most important part of, of oral history. And then lastly, I think that oral history gives us a more nuanced understanding of, uh, of the human experience through history. So thinking about how oral history can help us shed light on, on emotions and feelings that may not be easily trans, um, translatable through the documents, right? Uh, uh, being able to know how people actually felt, uh, know uh, the reflections of people and their participation in certain historic events. Uh, so for me, that's also important because um, it gives us a little more nuanced understanding of what history is and the human experience has been throughout events. Um, for example, in my own work, in my own academic work, Oral history has allowed me to really shed light on, on people's emotions and attachment to urban space, for example. So while, while politicians um, and, and developers may see uh, a neighborhood as a crumbling, as a crumbling uh, space, as a dilapidated space, uh, oral history has given me um, the kind of ability to reconstruct that even though that physically the space may be crumbling and, and dilapidated, that people have created roots and have created attachment to the particular space. And I don't think that any other source uh, could have allowed me to do that. For people who might be interested in beginning oral history or really starting it in their local communities, what's the best thing that you can think about to tell them uh, to start an oral history? What best practice or something to consider? Yeah, um, I always abide by this one book. It's it's an old, well, not old book, but it's been around for a while, but it's a fantastic um, guide to doing oral history. And it's actually called Doing Oral History by Donald Ritchie. Uh, I think um, the book, if you just have, you want to start something uh, oral history related or an oral history project and you don't know where to start, it's a great manual. I see it as a, as a manual uh, that, can, that gives you the history of, of oral history. It, it addresses uh, ethics and um, ethics and, and problems that may arise during oral history, but it really prepares you. And I think that it's a very easy to read uh, a, a book that can get you started. So um, every Every time that a student um, is coming to my office and saying, you know, I think I want to become an oral historian. Uh, and if they haven't taken my class, uh, I usually give them, give them doing oral history for them to start reading. And then we have a discussion on it uh, because I think it's, it's probably the best um, book that kind of just covers so much ground on, on the field itself. Uh, so we do that. I would also uh, really start uh, thinking about, I think that the, the most important part of oral history as well is having a repository. 
Um, so I would contact people in your community, especially those that already have archives or an archive holding um, uh, about uh, depositing your, your oral histories. And then, you know, you would work with already having consent forms and all of that, which is part of the ethical practice of oral history. Um, and then the last thing I would say, invest in a really good recorder. Um, I think that we don't, uh, as oral historians, we sometimes don't think about how fast technology moves. And so you just want to make sure that you have the best possible audio quality as you're conducting your oral histories, because you want to make sure as you're collecting this, this uh, narrative, you want to make sure that it survives the various changes in, um, in technology. So, uh, for example, we have wonderful, wonderful oral histories uh, that were conducted here in Kansas City, like in the 1950s, but we do not have, um, they're not digitized and they're not preserved digitally. And so um, these technologies, if we play them, right, um, we run the risk of, of damaging them. So thinking ahead, you know, as a, as a, in a preservation way, uh, that is very important to also make sure that you have a good quality recorder that may survive the test of time. Completely, I completely agree. <laughs> I'm thinking of a lot of the, the collections we have here that are, yeah, 50s, 60s, 70s that are just, every time they're used, they are going to be less and less likely to work the second time or the third time or even the, the devices we use to play them on can break and thus break the break the recorder at the same or the the tape or the or the reel to reel at the same time so completely agree with yeah. that that is so true uh you mentioned some of the kind of work you did kind of in your own research uh, now prior to joining uh the faculty at, at UMKC as an assistant professor what were some of the public history projects you were involved with um in graduate school and and around that time yeah um, so there, I've, I've been uh, fortunate to participate in many projects, um, not only oral history related, but um, also just public, more public history, um, relatively speaking. Uh, so when I was uh, uh, doing my master's in history at the University of Texas at El Paso, um, that's when my love for public history began. I enrolled in, in, a, in a public history course that changed my life. Um, I signed up with Dr. Uh, Yolanda Leva, who is the culprit as to why I am a public historian today. Uh, but we were able to work on this project that was celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Mexican Revolution um, in the El Paso Ciudad Juarez border. So it was looking at the role of border of the border city um, in the Mexican Revolution. And we had an exhibit that was displayed um, in November of 2012, or, excuse me, not 2012, of 2010 uh, at the anniversary of the Mexican Revolution. Um, and we were able to um, design this exhibit about the social, cultural, and economic ramifications of, of El Paso being a border city during this uh, conflict. And so uh, it was displayed in the El Paso Public History Museum, I mean, excuse me, at the El Paso History Museum for about a year. So I got to, to be a co-curator for that. And then from that project, we um, 
we did another project that was a little more grassroots. Uh, so the the history department is particularly the, the folks who were in that public history program created uh, what we called Museo Urbano or the Urban Museum. And through this project, um, we were we rented an old tenement, um, a couple of tenement units in the historic uh, Segundo Barrio or the second ward of El Paso, which is a border community. And we created exhibits uh, tied to the building itself, but also to the Mexican-American community there. Um, so talking about the role of the neighborhood um, for over a century. And it was very grassroots. There was uh, community participation uh, through it. There was community programming um, and, and edu an education component. It was very grassroots. So it was nothing like you've seen in, uh, in a traditional museum sense. Um, and so that, that all happened as I was leaving the master's program. And then when I arrived at the University of Houston, um, I served as an oral historian for the Gulf Coast Food Project, which is a broader project that is trying to chronicle the role of food and food history in the region. Uh, so I was able to uh, interview folks that we did, uh, that, that were, their oral histories were then um, uh, part of a documentary. So my particular uh, group had the task of chronicling the farm to table movement in Houston and looking at you know, how um, farmers who are in the outskirts of, of Houston, which is a large, you know, the fourth largest city, almost the third largest city in the country and, and how that, that movement of knowing where your food co is coming from, uh, was starting to take off there. But the, um, and then from there, the most important project that I've worked on in, in large, by and large in, in scale and scope, uh, I served as an oral historian for a project that is ran at a TCU or Texas Christian University called the Civil Rights and Black and Brown Oral History Project. And so I've been involved with this project since 2015. And it's, a, a project that is trying to compare, contrast, and connect uh, both uh, the African-American civil rights movement and the Chicano Latino civil rights movement in Texas. So uh, for two summers, I was in the field conducting, I've conducted over a hundred interviews uh, with folks that were in Houston, Galveston, um, and then along the border. Um, so. South Texas, places like McAllen and Brownsville, uh, Laredo and El Paso. And, and we were able to collect some really great oral histories of people that were involved in movements, um, not only when we, uh, of the time that we think about as the civil rights movement, um, like in the 60s and 70s, but um, also in contemporary times and how uh, we were able to really uh, uncover some really interesting narratives of connections from the past to today. Uh, and, and it was very fulfilling for me. Now, right now you serve as the director of the public history emphasis at UMKC in the history department. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this program? Yes. Uh, so the public history program, uh, unlike other programs around the region, uh, we try to focus on a holistic approach to public history. So oftentimes when we think about public history, we think about 
museum studies and the works of museums. And yes, that is a large part of uh, public history, but it's a little more robust than that. So our program tries to cover the various ways in which you can use and and uh, use your pub your your history degree or your history skills on a more public setting. Um, so that means you know if you want to be an oral historian, if you want to be if you want to be a museum studies, or if you want to work at a library or in a nonprofit, um, there's various ways that you can apply your historical skills and um, your public history skills. Uh, so we try to approach public history in a more holistic way than simply um, just like, for example, museum studies uh, or, or curatorial work. So the program is an emphasis. We train you first and foremost to be a historian, but the emphasis allows you to really uh, home in on some of the skills that public historians need. Uh, and then we allow you to take advantage of all of the great cultural institutions that Kansas City has. I think when I moved um, to Kansas City uh, two and a half years ago, one of the first things that I heard was that Kansas City has more museums per capita than New York City. And granted, we don't have the same population as New York City, but we do have a vast number of cultural and heritage and historical institutions in the city. Um, so what we allow you to do, you take an introduction class, you take electives, but the the best part is that you well two of the best parts one is that you take um, you take internships uh, whether they're paid or unpaid um, in one of the many uh, institutions that Kansas City has to offer and then that as you are building uh, as you're going through your coursework you're build, building a portfolio uh, uh, your own professional portfolio and at the end you have a culminating project, which is our capstone uh, public history project, whether in that's uh, anything goes that is public history. I've had students do interpretive plans for exhibits. I've had students do oral history anthologies. I have a student who is currently working on doing a, a documentary film. I've had students doing um, uh, walking tours. So it's, uh, and, and also digital, uh, digital components and digital humanities projects and websites. So it, 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 the whole program allows you to really build up a portfolio, not only building your skills, but building up a portfolio. So when you're ready to go on the job market, uh, I can probably say my students have said, you know, I've worked on these projects and here were my contributions and this is how I actually applied my experience. I think that public history programs sometimes can teach you all the theory and basics, uh, but if you don't have that hands-on experience, um, you know, it, it, it's, it can be a little detrimental. And so we try to give you the hands-on experience uh, through your coursework, through your capstone project, and obviously through, um, through the, uh, the internship uh, component of it. Now, so students, when they're affiliated with, with this kind of emphasis uh, and they're doing projects and internships, they're doing them throughout the entire Kansas City metropolitan area, right? Yes. What are, yes. Some, of the, what are some of the institutions that, they're, that they are working with that people might yes. be familiar uh, with? So we currently have, uh, as part of our competitive kind of uh, positions that we offer graduate students, we have four um, paid internships. 
So these four paid internships are uh, through, one of them is through the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, again, it's like thinking beyond, you know, historical sites. Uh, so the Chiefs have the Arrowhead Art Collection. And we have a, a student who is helping out with educational programming as well as curating uh, parts of it. Uh, and so that's one. We have a student working with the Kansas City Office of the Missouri Humanities Council. Again, it's more on the educational. Uh, we have a student working with um, Contemplace, which is a nonprofit arm of Iser Hold and Associates, which is a curatorial firm up in North Kansas City. And then we have one, um, well, we have a couple other ones. We have one uh, working for our digital, uh, digital history lab, which is where most of our, of our public history and digital history projects are coming out of. Um, and then I have a student too working with me on, um, on creating a, an exhibit on the Guadalupe Center. And I can talk about that in a little bit. But those are our paid ones. We also have other uh, partners uh, that help us have helped us uh, get students experience through like contractual work or um, or through unpaid internships. So we um, have a good standing relationship with the Warnell Majors House Museums, uh, with the Jackson County Historical Society, um, and and other uh, many many other institutions that. Uh, have opened the doors to our students and and allowed them uh, World War One Museum uh, that have allowed them to gain really critical experience. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from this week in history in a Missouri Minute. I'm Bob Pretty with this Missouri Minute. Father John Cummins delivered his homily that Sunday morning in Louisiana, Missouri, and was shortly thereafter arrested for preaching illegally. Father Cummings had not taken the oath of loyalty to the state of Missouri required in the new state constitution written as the Civil War ended. It prohibited men from practicing their professions unless they took the oath demanded by radical Republicans who didn't want former Confederates in private and public positions. Father Cummings refused to pay his fine and was thrown to jail. He refused to be released on bond and appealed his case to the state Supreme Court, which ruled unanimously against him, despite arguments that loyalty oath violated his freedom of religion. Prosecution argued a church is only an association of individuals sharing a common view they claim is divine. The case went to the U.S. Supreme Court that ruled on January 14, 1867, by only one vote, that the loyalty oath constituted punishment without judicial trial, a presumption of guilt until a person could prove innocence. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. Uh, now, you kind of hinted at it there, but kind of one of the big projects that, that you're currently working on and involved with is you're the director of the Latinx KC Oral History Project. Could you tell us about the origins of that and really what your overall goals are uh, as that project moves along? Yeah, so when I got to Kansas City, I, I was very excited to know as a, as a, as a Mexican-American uh, immigrant, I was really excited to come to a place that, with, uh, that although it was very far away from home, um, originally from the Ciudad Juarez, El Paso, Texas region. And I was really excited to come into a city that has had a long history of Latinos and Latinx and, and Mexican-American communities um, throughout the history of the, of, of the city. So I was very excited about that. And one of, as being the historian that I am, I quickly started asking everyone, well, where are the Latinx archives? Do we have any? Um, and to my not shocking surprise, 
there's very little uh, that has been collected when it comes to the to the Latinx community. And now Mexican Americans and, and Latinos have had a really long history here in Kansas City. I mean, it's the thinking about uh, trails, right? Like uh, the Santa Fe Trail, uh, the arrival of the railroad. So it's not a, a, a new population. Um, they've been part of the fabric of the city for, for generations. And I knew that I was going to start teaching a, a public history, or not a public history, an oral history class. Um, and I thought, well, why not merge the need to train my students um, in the methods, theories, and practices of oral history? But why not also start a, a large project that will serve as a, as a means to collect as many histories of, of the Latinx community here in Kansas City. So that's how it started. Um, it started out in the spring of 2017 and um, started with five very uh, shy but excited students who were throughout the semester uh, learning not only about Latino history in the city and in the United States, but about how like what is oral history, why should we use it, and how do we apply it to our own historical studies as well. And so they went out into the community and conducted oral histories based on their own topics of interest. Um, and so we that first year we collected um, 10 oral histories. And then I taught the course again um, on a much, much larger scale. So now, in the second reiteration of the project, I believe we now have about 26 oral histories and growing. Um, and these oral histories are not only um, chronicling the, the lives of people from, you know, the, I guess, the early histories of Latinos in Kansas City to contemporary issues. So they're anywhere from social activism, uh, education, discrimination, cultural um, uh, culture, uh, healthcare, etc. So they they vary in scope and in and theme. Um, and these are all uh, going to be archived at the Labuddy Special Collections up at UMKC um, for access to anyone who wants to use them. And there's also a digital history component to, to the oral history project. Um, these uh, oral histories, the students have done interpretive essays that are up online digitally uh, through uh, a WordPress website, which is info.umkc.edu backslash latinxkc. Uh, and there you can find um, snippets of the oral histories uh, and interpretive essays that connect them to the larger context and uh, of the history of the histories that they've they've chosen the, the students have chosen to write about um, and so although it's it's since I, I said this is my I've been here for two and a half years uh, it's slowly starting but my my vision for it is to really create a robust archive of Latinx histories um, in the region um, and and to really show the the long roots of the community in Kansas City, especially um, as our current environment thinks that Latinos are new arrivals, that 
we have not had a long role in the history of this country. And I hope that through these histories, we can demonstrate that, no, Latinos and the, the Latinx community has been here for a while, and they've been part of the fabric of Kansas City and of Missouri and the Midwest. Have there been any other kind of projects through UMKC or through, through your own work uh, that people might be able to find online in a digital format? Yeah, so we have, well, this one's just starting. Uh, so in a couple of years, you'll be, be, you will be able to find something. I'm partnering up with, my, with one of my colleagues in the history department. Her name is Rebecca Davis. And uh, in the support of, of uh, Shakardi and Bacon, which is a law firm, uh, and creating uh, another oral history project in a way uh, that also has a digital component that it's going to be, uh, it's called Profiles in Kansas City Activism. And this project is uh, doing profiles of important civil rights um, uh, activists um, throughout Kansas City history. Uh, and they all, from all walks of life, from various racial, ethnic groups, uh, and, and gender groups. So we hope to build a larger archive of, of people who have been significant to the history of Kansas City as well uh, through social movements. So we are we are getting that rolling here in a little bit. So in a couple of years, that will be that will be going. Uh, and yeah, so that's digitally. That's another uh, that's another project that I'm that I'm working on. And there's others that are cooking up in my brain. So uh, hopefully uh, people will have access to them uh, within the near future. You mentioned some of the project, projects you're working on, but you're also preparing to publish a book too. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah. Um, so I write about my hometown of El Paso, Texas. And El Paso, Texas was um, considered by many um, at the turn of the 20th century, the Ellis Island of the Southwest. So as, as people are coming and immigrating uh, towards the United States at the turn of the 20th century, a lot of them are, are making a community in South El Paso, Texas, or Segundo Barrio, um, which is a very historic uh, Mexican-American neighborhood in the Southwest. So my book, um, which is uh, roughly entitled uh, El Paso, uh, sorry, El Barrio No Se Vende, so it's a, the neighborhood's not for sale, uh, chronicles uh, these struggles of the Mexican-American community to prevent the bulldozer from taking their neighborhood in the 1970s and early 80s. Um, and you see some very fruitful grassroots community preservation efforts that stem from um, the desire to protect their communities, um, but also uh, you see a rise in, in political mobilization and, and like the politicizing of a community. Um, so the way that this uh, starts is that um, there's a the resolution of a hundred year old boundary uh, international boundary dispute between the United States and Mexico. Um, so in the 1880s, you have a couple in the 1860s and 1880s. You have a couple of historic floods that um, that shift the the course or the shift the the channel of the Rio Grande, which is you know the boundary of the United States down in in, in the south in the southern border. And uh, what happens is that parts of 
Mexico. So Mexican land ends up on the U.S. side. And there's a hundred year old dispute on, on who, it had, who is legally the owner of this, of this land and when not. And so in the 60s, this got resolved. And um, as, as the land is returned to Mexico and, and the boundary is shifted, uh, this community becomes kind of, it becomes a, a space that could renew, you know, what many deem as the front yard to the United States. And so you have this uh, kind of this blank slate in a way for the neighborhood to become commercialized or industrialized. And then you have a couple of tenement fires as well uh, that give rise to the, the need to redevelop the community. And so you have, uh, you, you start seeing a great number of displaced families that have nowhere to go because these are all working class families that can't afford to live elsewhere in the city, you have a housing shortage. And so this um, kind of emergency uh, that people have nowhere to go gives impetus to the formation of a couple of community groups that really fight for the what they call the regeneration of their community. So they want to not only uh, bring better housing, to the neighborhood because they were all living in mostly tenements that were dilapidated. Um, so as you, when you think about these tenements, you can think about Lower East Side um, in New York City um, with you know thousands of families living in one building, um, but this is in the 70s, in the 1970s. So um, they wanna, the, the activists, these, these groups wanna bring better housing, but they also wanna, wanna solve issues of poverty and social ills as they're organizing. So they negotiate urban redevelopment with the city and um, housing and urban development uh, officials. Uh, they create their own, um, their own nonprofit groups so they can get federal funds to actually bring housing in, on their own terms. Um, they also uh, become squatters in, properties that are marked for demolition and essentially purchase the, the, the uh, tenements and, you know, work through sweat equity and, and better the conditions of them. And then they also um, try to culturally revive the community. So they start planting community gardens and painting murals around the, city, uh, around the neighborhood. And so you see this very robust uh, community preservation movement that is happening there um, that that essentially preserves the community, although it was wounded and it was heavily depopulated, the community still stands today. And I think that um, with every city dealing with gentrification and displacement, um, that we should take a look back and look at this at these histories because, you know, the the approaches that the Mexican American community was taking in El Paso were not necessarily novel because there were they went elsewhere. And so I think that's important uh, lessons for our current situation right now about well, how do we incorporate communities, especially historic communities of color, into these redevelopment plans that often uh, ignore their needs, right? Um, that never take their, their lives or their roots and uh, attachment to their physical space that they've uh, lived in for generations into consideration. 
fascinating. Okay, very interesting to think about and, and to consider. Uh, well, thank you very much for, for being on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me in. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you are interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. With the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center slated to be closed from spring to midsummer 2019 for the move to the newly constructed Center for Missouri Studies, you only have a few weeks left to view three featured art exhibits. In the corridor gallery, the exhibit Work Artwork consists of art by staff members and volunteers from the Historical Society's six research centers across the state. In the main gallery, visitors will find two exhibits, Benton's Perilous Visions and the Aesthetic of the Monumental Figure. To learn more about these and other exhibitions, please visit shsmo.org art exhibits. National History Day in Missouri is looking for educators, historians, writers, filmmakers, museum staff, and community members to join them at this year's state contest to judge student projects. State contests will be held on April 27, 2019 at the University of Missouri in Columbia. To thank you for your essential participation in National History Day in Missouri 2019, the State Historical Society of Missouri will provide a light breakfast and lunch plus a travel stipend of up to $50 for judges whose round-trip mileage exceeds 75 miles. National History Day in Missouri is a unique opportunity for middle and high school-aged students to explore the past in a creative, hands-on way by producing a documentary, exhibit, paper performance, or website on a topic of their choosing. To learn more about National History Day in Missouri, including judge orientation and how to start a program at your own school, please visit shsmo.org nhdmo. On February 4th, join the State Historical Society of Missouri's Joan Stack and Faith Ordonio in room 114A of the University of Missouri's Ellis Library for a curator's presentation of Exodus, Images of Black Migration in Missouri and Beyond, 1866-1940. This exhibition explores how thousands of African Americans came to and through Missouri while seeking greater political, economic, and social opportunity. Images from the Historical Society's collections offer insights into the movement of African Americans from their first great exodus out of the South after the Civil War to relocations sparked by violence, repression, national disasters, and the turmoil of the Great Depression. Viewed together, the artwork, including fine art prints by George Cable Bingham and Thomas Hart Benton, creates an overall picture of American life in an era of dramatic change. This event is sponsored by the University of Missouri Libraries and the MU Black History Month Committee. On March 2nd, join Joan Stack, Creative Art Collections for the State Historical Society of Missouri, at the Arrow Rock State Historic Site Visitor Center for United We Stand, a public presentation on how George Caleb Bingham's election series paintings showcased his views of America's constitutional democracy in the mid-19th century. The 61st Annual Missouri Conference on History, hosted by University of Missouri-Kansas City and Park University and sponsored by the State Historical Society of Missouri, will be held March 6th through the 8th, 2019 at the Holiday Inn Country Club Plaza in Kansas City. For more information about the Missouri Conference on History, please visit shsmo.org mch. If you are interested in learning more about Missouri's upcoming Bicentennial in 2021, there will be two opportunities in March to hear from Bicentennial Coordinator Michael Sweeney. On March 12th, Michael will be at the Friends Room of the Columbia Public Library. On March 16th, Michael will be joined by Senior Archivist Claire Marks at the Jefferson County Library's Northwest Branch in High Ridge. To register and learn more about these events, please visit the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org events. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our-missouri.